Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Today we journey into the heart of mid-century America with our distinguished guest, Drew Gilpin Faust, a Bancroft and Francis Parkman Prize winner and the former president of Harvard and its first female president. She's written a memoir that serves as both a personal reflection and a historical exploration of a time that shaped our contemporary nation. It's a time that evolved to impact so many of us boomers who continue to have the whip hand in shaping the country. Drew Gilpin Faust's new book, Necessary Trouble, Growing Up in Mid-Century, is more than just a memoir. It's an invitation into the world of the 1950s and 1960s, a time marked by polarized national alliances, nuclear threats, and the social upheavals of race, gender, privilege, and resistance. But the story is more than a personal narrative. It's a reflection of the turning points in history, a vivid illustration of how one woman's life can personify the hinge moments that define an era. Her fight against racial and gendered assumptions resonates as she guides us through her engagement in civil rights, student and anti-war movements. It's not only her story, it's a testament to the urgency and passion of an era, a time when coming of age was inescapable from the gravitational pull of momentous issues. It's a story that reminds us that history is not merely a recitation of facts, but about its impact on lives lived, a living tapestry woven through the experiences and choices of individuals. Drew Gilpin Faust is the Arthur Kingsley Porter University professor at Harvard. She was the dean of the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, and after 25 years on the faculty at the University of Pennsylvania, she served as Harvard's president from 2007 to 2018. She's the author of several award-winning books, and it is my honor to welcome Drew Gilpin Faust here to talk about Necessary Trouble, Growing Up at Mid-Century. Drew, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm delighted to be with you. Well, it's great to have you here. In thinking about this period in the 50s and 60s, the era that, that we boomers grew up in, it's interesting to think that sometimes we think about it separately, as if it exists in a vacuum, not related to what came before, the, the way in which particularly the war period really loosened things up once the war ended in a way that set all of these forces free. Talk a little bit about that. I think that we often forget that we're called baby boomers because we were the product of the war in some sense. We are the product of the pent-up demand for family and normalcy that soldiers brought back from, from the victory over fascism. And so our parents had been through really life-defining changes in that, in that period. I mean, my father was in the military. He was in the intelligence service in France. He landed with Patton's Third Army a few days after D-Day. And he always felt that was the most significant moment in his life that nothing else, excuse me, ever compared to it. And so, in a sense, we were an afterthought as his children and family. And that, I think, had a tremendous impact on how we viewed the world. My mother, on the other hand, had been married uh, with her husband, new husband in uniform, and he soon went off to fight in the war. And there she was with one child. And she developed certain kinds of capacities and a sense of how things ought to be under her uh, independent uh, operation. But she also was separated in an early marriage in a way that I think would have a big emotional impact on how my parents related to each other um, as, as 
you know, husband and wife for the for the rest of their marriage. So the war had enormous consequences on family structures and family life. It also raised big questions about our society in that we were fighting fascism. We were fighting a racist enemy. And that cast all kinds of doubt on how we organized our own society at home. Harry Truman, of course, um, decided he had to desegregate the military at the end of World War II. It was such a contradiction with all the purposes of World War II to have this segregated military. And that, of course, was the, the impetus for many of the civil rights challenges and much of the progress that came in the decade that followed. And more than that decade, of course, but began with the push in the 1950s and Brown v. Board. Talk about the community in Virginia where you grew up. I grew up on a farm in the Shenandoah Valley in a very privileged family. It was a county of Virginia that had been settled by the younger sons of the Tidewater gentry in the 18th century. So even though it wasn't in the, the sort of heart of colonial um, Virginia power, it was imbued with the kind of slave society and the society of racial difference that followed the end of slavery. It was a society in which uh, people assumed, uh, white people assumed their natural uh, hierarchy of white superiority. It was a society in which women were expected to be wives and mothers rather than to um, have lives in the workplace, white women this is again. Uh, and so it was a society of tremendous constraints uh, with the, the understood operations of social difference and um, social privilege. When did you first become politically aware? That's such a great question because you have to say, what, what is politically aware? I first realized I was at odds with this society or first acted as if I were at odds with this society when I was very small. And uh, my mother was trying to make me wear little lacy panties and organdy dresses, pink organdy dresses that hurt and itched. And I just would have none of it. I did not want to be put into these vessels of ladyhood and femininity and um, decorous behavior that was expected of a young girl in my family. So I was kind of in open revolt against that. And in some sense, I suppose you could see that as political resistance, if you wish to interpret the acts of a two and three-year-old in that way. But the first more um, obviously defining uh, political action was probably when I was nine years old. And I was returning from school in a car that was being driven by uh, an African-American man who worked for my family. His name was Rayfield. And he had the radio on and there was a news station on and it was reporting on some of the conflict that had emerged in Virginia in the aftermath of Brown v. Board. Brown v. Board mandating the integration of schools, Virginia white leadership uh, insisting that schools should be closed in Virginia rather than integrated. It was a movement called massive resistance, meaning massive resistance to the Supreme Court decision. And so this caused all kinds of conflict and was being reflected in political debates around the gubernatorial race and there was being a lot of public and open discussion of race rather than its um, kind of unspoken acceptance as a marker of difference and hierarchy. And so I was suddenly hearing people talk explicitly about the 
divisions in the society, the uh, long-lived racial arrangements in the society in which I live. And I was just stunned. It was a, a moment of epiphany for me that my school was white, not by accident, but by design. And I thought in the way I often thought as a young girl being told what I needed to do to be a lady, I thought this is unfair. And that was for me a kind of mantra in my childhood. Things should not be unfair. So I went home and I wrote to the president and I said, I'm white and I'm nine years old, but I have many feelings about segregation. And then I told him why he should end segregation. And I guess looking for some higher power than the president, I kept invoking God to say, God <laughs> would want you to do this. Uh, not that I, my family was particularly religious. I mean, we went to church once a week, but we weren't people who said grace or talked about religion all the time. But I turned to this higher power to be persuasive in this letter. And I ended it with a kind of entreaty saying, please, Mr. Eisenhower, please um, let what I called in those days colored people attend schools and things. And my parents hadn't known that I'd written this. It was very much at odds with their conservative and conventional views. So this was the first necessary trouble that I began to make in a public arena as a young child. I guess what's so interesting with respect to young people taking these attitudes is that there's always this conflation that takes place between the rebellion of youth in general, not unlike James Dean in Rebel Without a Cause being asked what he was rebelling against, and he answered, I don't know, what do you got? And and the political rebellion that really means something and, and that really is an effort to change the world. Well, I, I've been struck. I found this letter, by the way. Um, it was in, I remembered having written it. I'd said for my whole adult life, I wrote this letter when I was a little kid. And then I began to wonder, did I make that up? And so I thought, well, I'm a historian. I'm going to see if I can find it in the National Archives. And it is indeed in the Eisenhower Library in Kansas. And I was sent a copy of it a few years ago and reunited with my nine-year-old self. And one of the things I find striking about the letter is how it embodies the clarity of vision of, of a young person. And when you're young, things often seem so uncomplicated in that right is right and wrong is wrong. And it's so hard to understand why those around you, those older than you, see the world as more complicated than that basic reality of what, what we ought to be doing. And what we've been taught are values that we should always adhere to. So I have been raised believing in democratic American values and small d Democrat, of course, um, and Christianity and loving one another and the things I quoted to President Eisenhower about what he should do. And so here was something so at odds with what I had been told. And so the intolerance for hypocrisy that is part of the young is is so critical. And I feel having been in a situation in, as a leader in universities and a professor in universities for many years, we have to value that because even when it sometimes makes us uncomfortable, the clarity of vision of those who want to fight climate change and want insist on actions that their uh, elders sometimes say are, oh, that's too impractical or that's too difficult. We've got to go slower. We've got to be more complex in our approach. We nevertheless need that clarity of youth to poke us towards the, the North Star of the values that we want to 
to honor and, and to adhere to. And as you were growing up and you interacted with other young people at the time, did they share your vision? Did you have to sell your vision to them? Talk about that. Well, not not when I was going to school in Virginia. I was seen as a little bit of a dangerous, <laughs> uh, rebellious person um, and unusual in, in my views. And I remained unusual in my views in, in Virginia. Um, but I went off to schools elsewhere. I went to a boarding school in New England and then to college in a women's college in Pennsylvania. And in both those environments, there were more people whose views were allied with mine. I mean, there were differences sometimes. For example, when I got to college and I was an early opponent of the Vietnam War, I had roommates and friends who thought I was making a terrible mistake and who believed in the domino theory that if we didn't protect Vietnam, all of Asia and finally America would fall to communism. ideas which I didn't accept at all. So I had differences with people, but once I got out of Virginia, I was not at all unique in in the the views that I embraced. The other part of it is that the views you embrace became more popular, I'm sure during even the time you were at Brenoir, that that those views became more acceptable. They became more mainstream, certainly within the college community. Certainly in the war, in terms of opposition. I went to my first um, anti-war demonstration, I think in April, 1965, when there was a large demonstration called in Washington. And those demonstrations just got bigger and bigger and bigger over the course of my remaining years in college as more and more of my fellow students became involved in the anti-war movement and it became a mainstream rather than an extreme position to hold. Talk about the anti-war movement and the civil rights movement and the way they they merged together in many ways, and yet they represented two very different forces. I kept my allegiance to to um, civil rights activity. I mean, not that I had organizations to join or anything like that when I was nine years old, but this was something that continued to matter to me. And when I was able to find expression for it, I, I leapt at the, at the chance. And in the summer of 1964, I was with a group, Quaker-inspired uh, and related group in the, in the South, uh, living in the homes of African-American activists and uh, working with them on testing the new civil rights bill and other activities in their communities. Was in Orangeburg, South Carolina, and Birmingham, Alabama, and Prince Edward County, Virginia, among, among other places. And that enabled me to really feel close to a lot of people in those communities who had risked enormous amounts in demonstrations and other kinds of um, uh, pushes for for racial change in their communities. And when I came back to to start Bryn Mawr in the fall of 1964, I felt a bit adrift after having been kind of at the heart of this powerful and compelling social movement. And in the spring of my freshman year, when the marches in Selma began, and I saw on television the march across the Pettus Bridge that ended with John Lewis having his head smashed open by uh, state troopers on horses and armed with tear gas and and other kinds of weapons, I just was, was horrified. I was aghast at what I was seeing. And I thought, can this be the United States? Can this be what we envision for our country? Can this be how human beings treat each other? 
And I thought to myself, if I don't do something now, who am I? And if I don't act and bear witness as Martin Luther King had asked Americans to do, I just won't ever respect myself as a human being. And so I um, said to my boyfriend, let's go to Selma. We borrowed a car and we drove down and we participated in the the kind of follow-up march to that bloody Sunday march. But it's often been said that Selma was the high watermark of the Confederate of the Confederacy. What am I talking about? A high watermark of the civil rights movement. And that after that, um, there really was a shift in uh, the kinds of fracturing and the kinds of critiques of civil rights that emerged. Uh, Martin Luther King was uh, increasingly criticized as having taken too much power to himself. He was um, seen as losing his influence. Black power was becoming more a central tenant and direction of the, of the movement. And for example, SNCC expelled John Lewis as its president because too, he was too much of an integrationist and they wished to pursue more of a black power agenda. So there was decreasing place for white people in, in the civil rights movement as it changed. And I think what happened was at the same time this was occurring and it became very challenging to figure out what, what's my next move, you know? So I went to Selma, what do I do now? At that same time, there was the um, emergence of, of anti-war activity. The day of the Bloody Sunday March in Selma in March of uh, the month of March of 1965, that was the same day, or it was the day after, excuse me, that combat troops arrived in Vietnam, American combat troops arrived in Vietnam. So you can see there was an almost symbolic and real transition uh, path that emerged for, for people concerned about the future of the world and the um, nature of our uh, identity as Americans. And so as we became more and more involved in, in the Vietnam movement, in the anti-Vietnam movement, that was empowered by the escalation of the war that was taking place, and also by the escalation of the draft that brought the war home to all of us who had anything to do with the young men, our friends, our lovers, our fiancés, the people who were taking classes. Bryn Mawr had an affiliate arrangement, coordinate arrangement with Haverford College. And so as we saw these, these people we knew so well struggling to decide, were they going to fight in this war that they regarded as um, immoral? Were they going to fight in this war in which they might die for a cause they didn't believe in? Were they going to go to Canada? Were they going to go to jail? Were they going to become conscientious objectors? Were they going to cheat on their um, draft uh, eligible exams, their physicals and so forth? And so that was a constant theme for all of us in college talking about what is the right thing to do here? And how do we stop this war um, in addition to helping people uh, cope with the reality of the draft? Is it your sense that the anti-war movement and the degree to which it attracted so many people to it, so many young people to it, that it had an impact on the way the civil rights movement splintered, that it, that it drew so many particularly white people away from the movement, that, that it really did have an impact on, on the civil rights movement itself? No, I never saw the causality going that way that it's because, oh, I'm going to go protest the war, so I'm not going to do civil rights anymore. Instead, I think civil rights emerged into such a realm of complexity. And as I was speaking about earlier, 
the the attraction of doing the absolute right thing and um, seeing uh, your moral path as so clearly um, designated is is very seductive and it no longer seemed possible to identify the clearly right moral path forward as the civil rights movement began to fracture and the uh, as the civil rights movement began to fracture and white people were not welcome in so many parts of it. And then there was also the, the very great difficulty as, as Martin Luther King brought the, uh, uh, his actions, endeavors into the North and was treated with such scorn and hostility and even violence in places uh, like his uh, efforts in the suburbs of Chicago, we began to realize, oh, what is the right way? How do you solve this? And it's not just the South that's so bad. It's it's right in our midst. And how do we relate to that? And, and what do we understand our role to be? And so Martin Luther King, I think, weakened his own force as an individual uh, leader because people began to have doubts about, about his movement into the North. But it was just much harder to see what is the straight way forward. And then here comes the war. Um, in Vietnam, which he also opposed and began to speak out against in very clear terms. But the war seemed now such an a embodiment of right and wrong. And why are we destroying this country? Why are we destroying these civilians? Why are we asking young men in America to um, fight and die for something they don't believe in? So that was that was a, a place to go where you could be certain about what you thought and be really um, without doubt almost in, in your actions to oppose those injustices. And the third force that was playing out at the time that you also write about is the role of women and the change in, in gender roles. That emerges um, so late as I, as I wrote my book and, and looked back and thought about civil rights and thought about the anti-war movement, the consciousness um, of women and justice to women was really just emerging in the late 1960s. And I think we could say the women's movement as the women's movement it became um, in those years really didn't take off until that next decade. And what took women so long to add their name to the list of injustices that, that we were opposing at that time? I think that's, that's just fascinating. Um, and it is partly, I think, because many women were so involved, activist women were so involved in thinking about people other than themselves that they only slowly began to articulate the, the injustices to women that, that included their own agenda within the array of, of um, things to fight for. There's a famous set of um, discussions about the emergence in SDS, the Students for a Democratic Society, of a kind of women's faction, Casey Hayden being one of the leaders who began to say, this, this just doesn't make sense. You know, you're making us wash the dishes while you guys go off and, and fight, <laughs> fight for justice. And, and that's just not how it can operate and it shouldn't operate that way any longer. And so there was a beginning of a kind of emerging consciousness in that arena about the necessity of addressing women's issues as well. There is a tendency among boomers today, I suppose, to continue to romanticize this period. Talk about that and, and in the context of 
as you looked back on it from a good number of years since, what surprised you? What you saw differently in, in writing about it now? When I look back, there are parts of it that I would romanticize, but I would recognize that I was doing so in the sense that there were some amazing moments in those years. I, I think, for example, being at Selma or some of the civil rights victories, it it just felt like the world was changing and you were having a part in it and the world was going to get better and you would have contributed to that. And, and that was unforgettable. I mean, to feel that you could join Martin Luther King and John Lewis in building a beloved community, it was unforgettable. But on the other hand, what else was unforgettable is that that fractured, that proved to be much more challenging than any of us ever thought. I don't think we ever could have imagined the kind of backsliding and backlash that we're involved in now. To see the Voting Rights Act, which was the outcome of Selma, eviscerated by the Supreme Court in recent years, to see uh, Roe overturned. I had this view that you know things were just going to get better and better and better, and, and that I'd been part of contributing to, to making those improvements. But then we had to recognize, no, people struggle always and will continue to struggle. And there was also a dark side to the 60s that I write about in my book as well. Some of my classmates who disappeared into violence in the weather underground or classmates who became so disillusioned that they turned to other kinds of violence. And I mean, there was a not a classmate, but a Bryn Mawr student a couple of years ahead of me who blew herself up in a, in a um, Greenwich Village townhouse when she was making a bomb as a as a radical activist and another who Kathy Bedeen was a senior at Bryn Mawr College when I was a freshman she ended up as as your your listeners probably know uh in jail after being part of a Brinks robbery van uh Brinks van robbery when someone was killed she died recently not long after she was released from decades in jail you know lives ruined through the the kind of auspices of 60s um, idealism and idealism gone wrong. And then there were students who just fell into to the trap of psychedelic drugs or other kinds of 60s practices that ruined rather than enhancing lives. So there's a very dark side to this too. I write in the book that my senior year began with a cheerful as in college. Um, began with the cheerful um papas of the um, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Heart Co- Hearts Club Band and ended with a dark message of Jim Morrison's um, drug-fueled um, trip on um, This is the End uh, and the, the kind of grim, grim reality that he portrayed in, in that book. And those, those bookends say something about the changing mood in that year and the desperation that that set in for for many. And finally, do you think it's made us all more cynical, those of us that that experienced it? And do you think that that cynicism is in some ways filtered down to a younger generation? Did it make us more cynical? I think the best outcome was that it made many of us more sophisticated, realizing (laughs) that you don't change the world in five years or even 50 years. You just have to keep changing the world. And you have to keep struggling away to push back against backlash, to 
course for the progress in the arenas that have so long mattered for you. I'm afraid it, it's made some people just give up, but I hope that young people will. And I teach, I've taught all these young people who are so idealistic and so committed to an arena of issues. And I feel that they're just so much more sophisticated, less simplistic in their approach than, than we were. And that's good. Maybe they can see that, that we thought it would be too easy and we could be um, too kind of one dimensional in, in the way we approach things and they're gonna do it in much more complicated ways. So teaching young people today is inspiring rather than depressing in, in any form. Drew Gilpin Faust, her book is Necessary Trouble, Growing Up at Mid-Century. Drew, I thank you so much for spending time with us. It was my great pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you.